Hello, and thank you for listening. I'm Jay Lemons. Welcome to Leaders on Leadership, brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. The purpose of our podcast is to share the stories of the people and forces that have shaped leaders in higher education and to learn more about their thoughts on leadership in the academy. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Barbara Mystic. Barbara is the president of the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities, known as NICU, where she is a champion and advocate for private nonprofit higher education in Washington, D.C. and around the country. Barbara has been an entrepreneur, an educator, and a leader in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. She has served in presidencies at Wilson College and the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh. She held leadership roles at Carnegie Mellon and at Seton Hill Universities, and she spent more than 20 years as an entrepreneur and a business leader in the transportation industry. Barbara is widely recognized as an advocate for women's issues and has served on the boards of the International Athena Foundation, the McGee Women's Hospital, the White House Office of Women's Initiatives, and the Pennsylvania Commission for Women. It truly is an honor to have Barbara Mystic with us today. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you, Jay. It's good to be here with you. Well, I am grateful for your sharing precious time during this uh, uh, period that we are living through where time has really um, been smushed together. And uh, while you and I have had the pleasure of knowing each other for a number of years, um, I, I will say um, uh, it was just such a special pleasure getting to know you even better through the search that brought you to the presidency of NICU. And, and through that search, um, I learned uh, about your um, deeper history. Um, and I am hoping that you'll be willing to share some of your story with our listeners and talk about some of the people, the events and opportunities that forged you, the person and the leader that you became as your journey and your expression of vocation found its way to higher education from a very different world. Thank you, Jay. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm a little nervous. You do know a lot about me. <laughs> so. Do well. Tell us how does one go from running a transportation company to representing private colleges and universities? Well, I certainly have had one of those career paths, Jay, that has not been linear. It's had some serpentine turns in it, and uh, and I think that's just made it richer. So. Uh, you know, I, I grew up, uh, my dad was part of what we know as the greatest generation. And uh, he was great in my opinion, you know, uh, just instilled such a sense of hard work in all of us and, uh, and a great sense of the value of education. Because my dad answered the call at Pearl Harbor after Pearl Harbor and enlisted immediately from high school into the army. And, um, you know, so he learned along the way how important education was. And certainly the army gave him these great opportunities to be in our old backyard. He went to uh, the war college in Carlisle when he was in the service. But I think it left him with this feeling about how important education was. And he really wanted to make sure that each one of his kids had that opportunity for, uh, you know, to go to college. And so I, I am the first in my family to graduate. And um, it's, you know, certainly is a foundational part of who I am. It's made me really appreciate the, the opportunities that education gives you. Um, I certainly couldn't be where I am today without that. <laughs> so all of your listeners, I'm sure, feel the same. But um, you know, I, I started out, as you mentioned, in the transportation industry. My dad was in the transportation industry, so I didn't move far. Um, but I moved to something I thought was going to be a little easier than what my dad was doing and um, did a lot of contract transportation. So if there's been one commonality in my career, it's been the academic calendar. So I've wandered a lot of different places, as you know, but I've always been on the academic calendar. Isn't that, that's, that's, it's one of the unspoken, I think, gifts and rewards of the academic life is there is a rhythm and it is as predictable as the sun rising and setting um, in every year of my life till this one. And even in this one, um, we have had, you know, perhaps late sunrises and we may have earlier sunsets, but uh, that sense of a beginning and um, a middle and an end to a semester and to a year. Um, uh, so, uh, so 
I didn't think of that as a as a common thread throughout your career, but that's um, that's really special. It's kind of wonderful because every year is a new beginning, and it has you know there's so much opportunity in each year. So it's it's been very exciting for me, and you know making that transition from being an entrepreneur. So I you know was in the transportation business. As a matter of fact, I founded my own transportation company and. Uh, expanded it, had pretty significant growth curve. And um, it's today, the company that I started is today operated by First Student, which is the largest pupil wow. transportation company in the world. And um, so it, it's kind of, um, uh, <laughs> it's just, it, it's, a, it's just interesting. It's an interesting uh, uh, twist, but um, I got into higher ed really because of entrepreneurship. I was running an entrepreneurship center at Seton Hill, and that was my entry into um, higher education, kind of one foot in the work world and one foot in academia. And, um, and it was, uh, you know, it was eye-opening to me because Seton Hill was a traditional liberal arts institution and um, not having you know, grown up through the academy, um, I came in and expected to be just kind of embraced by the academy. And I found pretty much the opposite um, uh, um, welcome there, which was, you know, uh, they used to call us the women in suits. You know, we were the women that ran the entrepreneurship center. And the funny part of it, Jay, was that my office was right next to the theater arts department. So I had theater arts and all that creativity and energy that comes with that. And then we were <laughs> this, you know, the business center right next door. So you can understand why they, uh, they just had, you know, they had kind of a dynamic for us. But it taught me early on about how important it is to, to create community, particularly in, on a college campus and how to bring people in and um, uh, actually, as a matter of fact, the first group that, that came along on the kind of push toward, I was on, I was there hired um, by an old friend of ours. Joanne Boyle, I was going to say. Yeah. Joanne Boyle, who's absolutely one of my mentors in life. She's just, I, I can't say enough about her leadership and really what she taught me. Amen. But, um, you know, her vision was to see entrepreneurship across the core. And just this sense, which is, you know, she had such an amazing vision because you look today, how many students have, are, are working in the gig economy. They are working um, in jobs that are short-term assignments and so on. Today, we're all working from home. Uh, and her sense was that if, if folks had these kind of entrepreneurial skills, that they'd be adaptable over time. And you know, what we know now is students, you know, careers are long and the average number of jobs across your career you know, can be eight, nine, 10. It's not, um, it's not our it's not our father's world anymore. But um, um, just to finish that story, the first, the first department that came on board was the theater arts department. Because if you think about it, most theater arts majors are operating in the gig economy. And they really need to have a certain sense of business skills, how to negotiate a contract for themselves, you know, how to piece together various pieces of work across. So, you know, I, I realized that you just have to have those small wins. You can't always have a big win. And um, I learned a lot at Seton Hill. It's a great place to be. Well, I, uh, and, and Joanne Boyle was truly an extraordinary president. Um, professor of English um, who uh, found her way um, sort of accidentally to administration and uh, profoundly changed um, Seton Hill and its trajectory. How did Joanne compel you and what were the circumstances of your own life that made you open to, uh, uh, to a transition from the transportation uh, uh, world? Uh, that's a really great question, Jay. I had actually just sold my business. <clears throat> the success, the, the company that became first student is, was Laidlaw Transit. So they were a Canadian company. They were owned by Canadian Pacific Railways. And Laidlaw was consolidating regional operators um, into larger operations across the country. So, um, you know, it was really, it was one of those moments, one of those kind of career moments because I had started the business and, you know, it was kind of my baby, right? And it was, it had grown. I had a couple different terminals. I was running, you know, six, 700 vehicles on the road every day. You know, the funny thing, 
for me about being in business and being in higher education in business, I knew it was a good day every day when everything went out and everything came back and there were no accidents or incidents. That was a really super day. You got feedback right yeah. away yeah. each and every day. And I remember my first day on the Seton Hill campus thinking, you know, where's the feedback that you've, that you've done a good job today? It, it, actually, it, the feedback is so much further and longer uh, down the road in higher ed. It's extraordinarily rewarding when a student comes back and I have I've been so lucky, so fortunate to have that experience. Say, you know, I took your class and this is where I am today. But, you know, it takes a long time to get that kind of feedback. It's a totally different motivation. Um, and Joanne was looking for somebody who, she, it was, she had an entrepreneurship center there on campus for women entrepreneurs. And so she was looking for a woman leader to head up that initiative. And we had one of the very first grants from the SBA, from the Small Business Administration. Um, we worked a lot with a great, great congressman at the time, John Murtha, uh, another person you'd remember. And uh, yeah, yeah, Congressman Murtha had a great uh, commitment to his community, made sure that Seton Hill got uh, involved in the Small Business Administration and had this opportunity to start this entrepreneurship center. And really was one of the first in the country for women entrepreneurs at that time. I know, you know, today there are many opportunities and many centers. I think the, the uh, women's initiative at the SBA must have 50, 60 centers across the country, but we were in that very first handful of entrepreneurship centers. So it was, it was really fun. It was a very fun time. And um, Joanne was just terrific, terrific to work for. Well, thank you for sharing some about your journey, which is a, a, a really special one and a place where you and Joanne broke a lot of new ground. And, um, and I know that um, you have long been a champion for women. Um, we both know the sad reality is that women remain underrepresented in presidencies in, in, in higher ed in the country. And I'd love for you to raise up how we might more effectively move the needle as AZE's um, um, effort to assure gender, gender parity by 2030 has challenged our higher education community. Well, I think uh, it, the, the challenge is not just for women, it really is across diversity in the sector. Indeed. And I think, I think that that's the really difficult part. So, um, you know, what, what is, I think somewhat frustrating today, especially because you know we've been under we've been doing these initiatives for a long time, is to say see women leave presidencies and see them, uh, you know, see the new leader come in be a male leader, and you know certainly boards are hiring the best person for the job at the time, but we're making these kind of fits and starts. So while we want to see some level of parity uh, soon, <laughs> hopefully. I, you know, I think what we're doing is seeing a step forward and a step backward. And it means that we just, all of us who can make a difference is to be vigilant about this. And, you know, one of the things that I've done across my career, because I do feel very committed to diversity, is to make sure that there's a diverse candidate in every single search. And, um, and I have, you know, back when I was at the library, I started this initiative and people bring searches to me with no diversity and we'd start over. And if you send that message a couple of times um, as the leader of an organization, people do start to get on board, they start to understand and no one wants to do work twice. So, um, you know, but that makes a difference, I think is, is making sure that you open up the doors and that you bring somebody else along. And, and um, you know, that it, it's, it, we're gonna have to continue to have a focus on it though. I believe we, you know, I'm glad you raised the topic, Jay, because we have to keep talking about it um, in order to make change. We do, well, and thank you for, um, a really concrete example of how, as the hiring authority, we can truly have an impact by saying, no, not good enough, reach further. Um, that can really profoundly have a positive impact. Um, um, you know, I, uh, I wanna switch gears um, and um, I wanna take a measure of your sense about what makes a good leader. And, and, and by good, by the way, I don't mean grade B, I mean, virtuous, effective, and highly successful. What are the qualities? 
Well, I think especially today, and maybe that I'm saying this, uh, you know, a little later in my career rather than earlier, but I think you have to be empathetic, um, especially right now. Um, when you have a crisis, this is a global crisis that we have that we're all dealing with in the pandemic. When you have a, a global crisis like this, it's, it's not just the global crisis, it's a very personal crisis to each and every person because every person's situation is different, uh, that whether it's the, their family, whether it's um, their own health uh, situation, there's just a number of reasons to create anxiety. So I think a good leader has really got to be empathetic, which means you have to be kind of in the no judgment zone um, about how other people feel. And, and I've seen a lot of this, particularly I'm sure you have too. Um, you know, there's so many constituencies in higher ed, there's always one <laughs> that's gonna be pushing back against the decisions. So, you know, figuring out how, how to embrace that kind of no judgment zone becomes just so important. Um, I think the other piece that's really important today is to be strategic. Um, you know, it is so hard to get lost in the moment, particularly when you're in a crisis, because you're, you spend a lot of your days responding to what's going on. But instead, what you really need to do is to be looking down the road and your institution you know, needs you to be looking down the road so that you can come out of the current situation and, and be in a different spot. So, I was a big proponent, particularly at Wilson, we did very short strategic plans. You know, we did many of them. <laughs> Folks will remember four, you know, like two year plans because we were, you know, we were doing a turnaround and really growing in size. And so you can't set a 10 year direction when you're changing so quickly. I, I think that is going to follow true at this particular time as well. Oh, no question. Um, uh, yeah, uh, being more nimble and um, uh, adapting uh, more quickly. Yeah, I, I am hearing more and more of that. The absurdity of five-year plans is, uh, is uh, just that. So yeah. Yeah. thank you. Yeah. Yeah, when, you know, um, we, we both know that um, leadership's a team sport. It's not an individual sport. When you're creating that team that you work with, what are you looking for? What are the qualities that you want to find in, in those that you uh, are a part of teams that you lead? Well, I, the, I think the number one piece is to hire people who have great functional expertise in their particular area. And in my opinion, I want them to know more than I know about that area. I want them to be smarter than I am in each of their respective specialties, because I want them to bring that conversation to the table and those insights to the table. Then the other thing that I'm looking for is people who will support each other. And I think that is especially important today uh, because we're all feeling a certain amount of anxiety. So if we can't take care of each other as a team, then how can we take care of the rest of our community? So I, I'd say those are the two most important pieces. Um, the other thing I'd say that wouldn't surprise you, Jay, if we were, uh, you know, if this was, uh, uh, if, if we were in video, we'd probably both be shaking our heads, but the, you know, kind of the no surprises piece. So you want people who, who are on your team who are willing to tell you both the good news and the bad news <laughs> so that you're not, uh, so, that, so you're prepared each and every day. It's people who will have your back, I guess that's the bottom line. Absolutely. You know, part of our listenership um, are, um, you know, participants in our AALI leadership programs that are people who are at various points in discerning, um, you know, what, what their um, uh, aspirations might be and what the call on their hearts might be. And I really welcome um, your sharing any wisdom, any advice you have for those who do aspire to leadership positions in higher education. Oh, that's a that's a really good question. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, while I was at Wilson, I uh, did a book about the future of work because it is it's it's kind of one it's one of my passions. It's uh, wow. uh, the things I really care about is where is work going, and and I I care about it. You know, from a from a public policy perspective, but also in terms of all of our students, the students that we serve, and so. Um, the, the, the scope was to how to future-proof your career. And one of the things that I found that people told me over and over again in interviews 
is to get a lot of experiences. As a matter of fact, I think I use the word greedy, is to be greedy about experiences. So, you know, just trying different things. Um, you know, often I think people will sit back and wait for an opportunity to come to them. And uh, I, I think it's important sometimes you just put your hand up. You know, you've got to put your hand up and say, you know, that sounds like an initiative that, that would be interesting for me. Let me have that different experience. I've also found that in, you know, in senior team members, those people on your team who are willing to put their hand up, they become very valuable to you um, as a leader as well. So, you know, I think that's, that's really important. I think the second thing that's really important is to build a good network. Um, you know, and, and uh, it seems everybody understands networking is kind of like one of those buzzwords, you know, so, um, but we're only really as good as the people that we hang out with. And that's, that's our network, and it can't be really big. And so, you know, I used to kind of say you have to have this kind of five to thrive. And if you can keep in touch with those folks, but it has to have this reciprocity, it can't just be people that you say, you, you, like, I haven't seen you in four months or six months or a year, and then I'm asking you for a favor. <laughs> it has to real. you have to spend time on it and build that kind of deep network and, you know, get involved in um, organizations, professional organizations. It's a great way to, to expand your network. Wonderful, wonderful advice on, on all counts. Um, uh, thank you very much. Talk a little bit about what you see as the most critical challenges facing our leaders today. Well, you know, I think um, uh, perhaps the most critical challenge is not to lose this moment. So, you know, we're in a moment here that um, allows you to really look very carefully at what's, how you're operating your campus and how your institution is running. And, um, you know, there's, there is a, an opportunity in these kinds of moments to make changes. There's a little bit more permission on a campus to make a change in a challenging time. So I, I would say that, you know, that would be important. I see people moving their academic calendars, going to, um, you know, different quarter systems as, as opposed to the trimester system. People are actually, the other thing people are doing is that they're trying things out. And that's pretty exciting. You know, that's something about this moment that you wouldn't want to lose. You know, it, there is some permission to try hybrid learning. There's some permission to try online learning. All of those things are, are you know, really exciting and I think a great opportunity. Um, the other part that I would say is, um, you know, for particularly for private nonprofit colleges, and you know I'd have to say something about this, uh, Jay, I couldn't miss this moment. I can't miss this moment too, <laughs> um, is, is to just talk about the value of the residential college. I mean, if I have seen a silver lining in, the, in this uh, uh, pandemic, it has been how much students value the community of being on a college campus. It's not just the educational um, uh, criteria. It's not just the, the, the you know, wanting that degree and wanting to look to their future, but they wanna be part of a community and they're learning both as people and as, and as learners, you know, lifelong learners. So, you know, I think the diversity of our sector is the strength of our ecosystem, our higher ed ecosystem. And there's going to be a lot of conversation going forward about the value of free public college versus private institutions. And so leaders of private institutions are going to have to really be willing to step up and not just be an advocate for their own institution, but for the sector as well. We really need leadership that's looking at us in a more, in a broader way and, as, and is willing to be the intellectual uh, leader that they are and talk about the value of, you know, both the liberal arts and the residential college experience. I think that's gonna be um, extraordinarily important. Um, the other thing I'd say, if I can have a third one, Jay, if you'll let me have uh, number three here, I'd say the margins are just narrowing and shrinking. And I'd say this is not a new thing. Um, in my opinion, it's been around for a long time. But um, because many people who are leaders are also cheerleaders, right? They're 
optimists. So we, there are good things that happen every day and we're focusing on those good things. We're gonna to have to focus on you know, this, the margins and how tiny they are and be able to create both efficiencies on our campus and take this conversation about public versus private and, and just do a big pivot to how we can focus on helping students be successful and navigate this, the higher ed experience and graduate successfully. That's gonna be really critical. Being able to frame that narrative, being able to talk about it um, and tell those stories, you know, that, that's, that's gonna be so critical for the future. Thank you. I, I can't help but not reflect on the importance of um, that which you put your finger on, the value of the residential experience. Um, it's a profoundly important um, part of the learning experience and the environment for so many of particularly our traditional age um, college students. Um, and it, it, I have regretted that so much of the press it seems to me during this pandemic has focused on either the greediness of the college presidents or the irresponsibility of our leaders. Um, and to be certain the financial um, ramifications of, of loss of all auxiliary revenue are truly important. But um, I can, I just know that those leaders understand that the best of the educational experiences that they're providing their students um, are often um, uh, bound up in the, the, the residential experience. And in fact, um, um, our students have hungered. I, I recall, um, you know, a wonderful colleague and, and friend, um, uh, Harvard uh, professor Dick Chait um, uh, saying once upon a time, um, you know, when he was challenged and asked if there was going to be a future to the residential institutions, he said, you know, I don't know anybody yet um, uh, who, whose 18 year olds want to go down to the basement to go to college, um, living at home. And, you know, there are plenty of folks who must commute, who don't have the chance for that that sort of experience, but uh, I do think that we're learning that we can break the fissures. Um, we're, we, we, have, we have muscles, we haven't even exercised. And so you're so right about the creativity, the, 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 the scheduling nimbleness um, uh, and the, the ways that people have flipped and thought about the curriculum in new ways. It's really exciting what's unfolded and how I love your challenge of how do we hold on to some of that as we get to the other side of, uh, of this pandemic experience. So thank you for sharing. Well, make no mistake, Jay. I think that our presidents out there today have been absolutely heroic in this time period with, yeah. with very little federal direction. Uh, you know, there's the, this has been just a, I don't know. It, it, uh, it has just been a bizarre time, <laughs> as we know. And so what you've seen is it's all gotten pushed down from the federal side to the states. And then in some places, the state hasn't taken charge and it's down at the municipality level. So I can't tell you how many of our presidents I've spoken to who've had to make decisions for themselves. And so they're really on the front line. They're on the front line of reopening. Everybody wants everybody to reopen, but with very little direction. So people are, are, are really figuring it out and it has been definitely a leadership test to sort that out. Uh, and I could not agree more. I mean, the indefatigable, indefatigable uh, nature of, of presidents has been never more leaned on. And not just presidents, but also their teams, um, because uh, you know it's always been um, uh, paramount to assure the health and safety of your community. But never has it been on such public display, where um, not just the, uh, the the focus on the risks of young people, but the risks of a mature workforce and the unknowns, um, um, you know, the ways in which um, uh, what we know about COVID-19 has evolved and changed. Um, and um, it's, uh, to me, um, I, I feel as if um, there have been hundreds of untold stories of 
institutions that are doing pretty darn well in managing this. And I frankly know that an awful lot of those untold stories are stories of the NICU membership that don't necessarily get um, all the headlines. And um, um, I wish um, that, the, the, that the higher ed press and others would, would pay attention to, I you think, know, the very best of what I we can that learn. I, I feel it too. I did, you know, I've done conversations just in the last week with the Washington Post and with the Christian Science Monitor telling those stories, the good stories. And um, I haven't seen any of them in print yet. <laughs> At least people are asking the good stories, but they're not making it to print. I think the other piece, Jay, that is so, you know, so critical for a good leader is good communication skills. And we didn't touch on that earlier, but you know, there's just, there's a panoply of good skills that you need to be a leader. But in this time that your communication skills have become so much more important because as we were talking about, you know, the shifting guidance, it shifts every day. And so communities, you know, we're responsible as leaders to bring our community along. And that's become very difficult in this time period. And you're seeing these pushbacks on campus uh, from folks who feel like, you know, we, we do live in this world. The wonderful thing about higher ed is the sense of we're in it together. And our community is sort of dependent on really having shared governance. And so what's really challenging is that um, every part of our community wants to be part of the decision making. And so it's been very hard for presidents who have to make decisions on the fly and, and kind of you know, build the plane in flight and they're making these quick decisions is to be able to bring everybody along. But it, it has become so critical to at least have folks understand the process. That's the difference I've, I've seen is if people can understand how you're gonna make a decision and why you're gonna make a decision, then even though that decision might feel outside their control, they do still feel a part of how decision-making is happening. I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, our normal mechanisms of gathering and meeting have been supplanted. Um, and yet we have found um, new pathways, new arteries that, um, while, um, you know, may not, well, they are different, um, they can be effective. And uh, so that's, that's another part of um, really learning from this. Well, Barbara, let, let's move to a little bit more of, of a lightning round where I ask you um, a whole series of, uh, a quick series of questions. You take as much time as you want in, in providing your answers, but start with who most influenced you? Oh, Jay, that's such a difficult question because you know, I think so many people influence you for different reasons. But we, you know, a little earlier we were talking about Joanne Boyle. I'd, I'd, I'd have to say that Joanne has been one of the great influences in my life. Um, she was just a, an extraordinarily collaborative leader um, and really brought people in the community along. And that's something that I feel is so important today. You know, I feel that sense of transparency is important. And Joanne certainly had all of that. Um, the other, the other great higher ed leader that I had the good fortune to work with and for uh, was Jerry Cohen at uh, Carnegie Mellon. And uh, Jerry and I had kind of an interesting relationship because before uh, uh, I was at Carnegie Mellon for a couple of years and just saw Jerry um, uh, intermittently a couple of times. I was on a project that he was involved with it as well. But when I went to the library, it turned out we were both sister organizations. We were part of Andrew Carnegie's original set of organizations. And so that gave us um, a special status. We got together every two years, convened by Bartan Gregorian, who you know as well, um, at the Carnegie Corporation. And so all of a sudden, uh, you know, Jerry and I were peers. And so, uh, you know, we just uh, uh, got to know each other in a totally different way. And I have found that every time I'm stuck about something, that uh, I'll, I'll drop Jerry an email and, and he'll have some great insight. And it's just been really valuable to have folks at different kinds of organizations dealing at different levels, but to, um, to be able to have them in your network. That's, that's just uh, been a gift for me. Thank you. Do you have a fondest memory of your own undergraduate experience? You know, um, my undergraduate experience was um, a little interrupted. So I started out my undergraduate experience at, at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. 
And so um, uh, my fondest, and then I left uh, a couple of years in. That's kind of typical of many of our students today. Um, my dad, who I talked about a little earlier, um, had a health challenge and I went back home to, I was the, I'm the oldest in the family, so I went back home to help in the family business. So I interrupted my undergraduate experience, but to this day, the friendships that I made in Cleveland are still the friendships that I have today. And as a matter of fact, one of my closest friends when I was on campus at Case Western um, lived directly across the street from me in Washington, D.C. <laughs> so, wow. so all of a sudden, you know, I'm in a new town and a new job um, and, and you're flying all over the world. I can't call Jay and say, hey, Jay, can you <laughs> give me a hand? Uh, that was back in the flying all over the world days. And uh, so it just, it was just a great gift to me. These friendships are, are, that you form on a college campus are just remarkable. And I, I think it is one of the, you know, it's one of those intangibles that we don't often talk about, um, how those relationships of people who saw you grow up and who grew up with you, um, how they can stay with you across your lifetime. Wonderful. Thank you. You represent about a thousand uh, private institutions today. Um, so uh, the irony, so you've got the whole rainbow of colors to choose from. What are your favorite school colors? Well, I kind of like the rainbow. That's a really great idea, Jay. Um, I have to say the most unusual colors I ever saw at an institution I worked at was at Carnegie Mellon. They had the tartan, the tartan plaid. Right. And so, um, you know, I can remember days with the, where Kearney Mellon also has, I think it might be the only institution, someone will correct me. <laughs> One of your listeners on your podcast will correct me, but I think it's the only institution that still has a bagpipe major. And so the bagpipes, wow. in my office, I, I could hear them, they'd play, they'd practice on the green and I could hear them in my office. And it's that sound is so, there's something just mystical. It, you know, it's not exactly spiritual, but mystical about the sound of the bagpipes. So I don't know, the tartans include a lot of colors. So uh, that might be the closest thing to there you go. I, I love it. And I love your invoking. Um, uh, I had no idea there was a place that had a bagpipe major. Um, certainly the pipes are common um, and uh, uh, you know, our, many of our Presbyterian colleges, I think of, uh, of Monmouth, where um, the, the pipes are a part of every state occasion and uh, many others uh, where uh, the, the, the Scottish roots are, uh, are, are celebrated and remembered. So wonderful. How about tradition? Do you have a favorite tradition at a place that you've served? Oh, traditions there, you know, I, I think there are a whole set of traditions that are just so much fun. And that's why people remember them. And they're, they're, you know, it, it, when you come back 50 years later, you remember them. But I think as a president, uh, you know, I'd probably answer this question differently uh, in, in my own undergraduate experience. But as a president, my favorite uh, traditions were those that really brought community together. You know, I, I kind of really liked convocation. I know, you know, it's it, it, because it, you know, it's almost back to the beginning of our conversation, Jay, you know, I, I yeah. like the academic calendar and, and convocation kicks off the year, you know, it just kicks off the year and you know, everybody's together for a moment. Uh, before everybody scatters. And it's, it's just wonderful. You know, I think reunion is another great tradition. And there's nothing like seeing people come back to campus. I can't tell you how meaningful it was to me, not knowing the community over all those many years, when people would come back and they would have tears in their eyes and it, they would, you know, particularly singing the alma mater. I mean, sing, you know, singing your alma mater, man, that's a great tradition too. Uh, this is not a good question for me <laughs> because there's so many of them that are terrific. I mean, graduation is the other one, you know, there's nothing like seeing that culminating moment when students walk across 
the stage. And when you, you know, the great thing about being a small institution, you do get to see them walk across stage and you do get to shake their hand and, and the crowd is so huge. So, you know, it really does drive home that sense of how many it takes, you know, to, to see a student graduate and how many people contribute to the success of students. I mean, you, all your faculty are there and the staff and it's, and, and other students, it's just, you know, so I think, it's those, the things that I, the traditions I like the best are those that bring people together, community yeah, people. Bring people together, absolutely. Well, you know, your, uh, my next question, which I ask all our guests, is about uh, roads not taken. And again, I think about the richness of, of your own life and career. Um, uh, you know, having responded to a family need that launched you into the, uh, you know, an entrepreneurial role in the transportation business, uh, finding your way into higher education, landing at the Carnegie Library, um, um, you know, you have done a lot. Are there any forks or roads not yet explored or taken, or what else might you have wished you had been able to do? What forks might there have been out there that you might have loved? Well, you know, I, I really, uh, I, you know, I, as you said, I've had such a great uh, career and I, just so many wonderful opportunities. I mean, the thing I'd say is people have said to me along the way, when I, particularly when I took the job at the Carnegie, they said to me, you'll never go back to higher ed. Um, oh. it, it, as a matter of fact, uh, a search consultant um, who I knew and whose opinion I valued said, you know, if you take this detour, if you leave Carnegie Mellon and you go to the library, you're going to have a hard time getting back into higher ed. And I, I, you know, I think today careers are much more flexible. I mean, there are many more ups and downs. And so that's really wonderful. I think had I not gone the direction that I did, I most likely would have stayed in business. I got to tell you, I love business. I do. I love the, I love the financial parts of it. I love the community part of it. I love seeing uh, where you can go and figuring out a way to get there. So, uh, you know, I, I think I would have stayed on that side and, and been extraordinarily happy. Um, I do, I think, you know, if there's one experience I would like to have had more of, it would have been more uh, international experience. And, um, you know, I think that part of that um, it, it was kind of tied together with uh, my role and my gender. Uh, so, you know, once you end up with a family situation, it's kind of hard to take your family <laughs> all over the place. So, um, uh, you know, I think that is that is more difficult. Um, you know, if I, I, if I uh, had taken a different road, I would have done that sooner. I would have done it earlier. Uh, much earlier in my career. I mean, I, I did get some opportunity to teach internationally and in Italy, and I loved it. And, um, you know, I've had some other opportunities. Uh, uh, when I was at Carnegie Mellon, we had a project in India. So, you know, it, those, those kinds of things are just so rich um, that um, I think I would have enjoyed a little more of that. But that's not to say that every moment today is just wonderful. And I, w I can't imagine any other place to be than where I am right this very moment. Well, I know there are not many, many, many folks. I'm grateful you are where you are and, uh, and, and many, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of folks who are dependent upon the leadership that you and your colleagues provide. And you know, one of our wrap up um, traditions here is, uh, we like to have folks talk a little bit about the distinctive qualities, um, and if you will, the organizational DNA of, uh, of, of, of NICU. Um, I wonder if you would just share with us a little bit about why you sense that our independent colleges matter to the future of our country. Well, you know, Jay, independent colleges are part of the richness of our country. They're part of the diversity of our country. So we've got this tremendous tradition over hundreds of years, you know, not, it, it's just a very rich and deep legacy that private nonprofit education has in this country. And we can't lose that. We can't, we can't let this moment have us end up with a, a number of mega institutions, because that's kind of the direction that public college wants to take students today. They want to take them towards supporting 
um, flagship institutions that have 80,000 students. And, you know, I, there are amazing things that happen at flagships. I'm not, uh, I don't want to, uh, uh, I don't want to suggest that there aren't good things at every part of our ecosystem. But I think that our ecosystem is stronger because we do keep each other competitive. We keep each other, um, you know, really trying to see the future in a better way. We do keep, uh, you know, we do hold together in many ways. And I think one of the things that Nike has been able to do right now, and I, and, I, and I have found this to be perhaps one of the most important things that we do is to continue to represent the interests of private nonprofit colleges. Um, because within our ecosystem, it, all of it is important, but we have to make sure that our voice gets heard because otherwise, you know, with, with uh, declining federal dollars, with declining public support, this is all aside from the, you know, the, the great success that we had in the CARES Act and the number of dollars that came in the CARES Act for private nonprofit institutions. Actually, you know that, Jay, that was the very first time that private nonprofit institutions have gotten stimulus dollars. In 2008, all the stimulus dollars went to public institutions. So this has really been a watershed moment and I've you know, been thrilled to be a part of that. But in order for us to stay in this moment and to continue, we've really have to stay much closer to our elected officials. They really need to understand. I mean, we are at a point in time where they need to understand our needs. And so, you know, I think for many of our institutions, they underestimated the challenges of reopening this fall. So the, the range of stimulus that we're really looking for in this next round is significant. So, you know, we did some estimates early on about the cost of reopening on a per student basis and multiplying that out over the 5 million students in our sector. Um, it, it's just, it is, it's, you know, we're looking at over $100 billion in aid that would be necessary to compensate for the revenue losses, the expenses to reopen. I mean, it's just a huge number. And, you know, the current proposals that are out there, none of them even come close to that. So, you know, I think what NICU does is, it, particularly today, when we're going to need the Fed in order to come out of this particular crisis, come out of the challenges of this time, and be stronger afterwards, we're going to need to be actively on the ground in Washington and making sure that our representatives understand our sector. And, and the, different, the difference with NICU, the part I love best about NICU is the way that we are a community. So we count on our presidents to tell their story and their local community to their local elected official. And then we back that up in Washington on the public policy side, working with committees to just to make all of this kind of come together, mesh together. And, um, and that's really, you know, it's so powerful. It's, it is absolutely, um, you know, we're really lucky in many ways to, because our, our, our membership, as you mentioned, is so diverse. I mean, we've got everything from research institutions to uh, smaller, um, smaller faith-based institutions. So we're wide across the spectrum, but what we share together is our independence and the fact that we, you know, we want to be able to offer the kind of education we know is really going to benefit the students of the future. Well, thank you. You're absolutely right. And I, I can't help but not reflect on and celebrate the way that our independent institutions have really been engines of innovation in higher education. Oh, you know, across um, uh, centuries now. And, um, uh, and, and it is, I think it does represent um, this uh, critical part of the higher ed uh, ecosystem um, that, 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 that you um, have, have called it. And, and, um, and certainly um, and the absence of that sector, that sector not being healthy um, would impact public higher education in ways that would be um, would create unusual burdens um, uh, for those institutions and extraordinary expenditure of public dollars um, uh, uh, were, were our independent sector not um, thriving and present. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, at this particular moment, we, it's not just our institutions too, but it's the communities that we're in. For many of our institutions, we support a college town. And that, you know, if, if our institutions are, 
suffering are declining in those communities, the communities are too. So it adds an added responsibility and an added burden uh, to higher education institutions and higher education leaders as well. Uh, it, it really does. And, and that's a, I, I really appreciate the, the point that you just made because um, it's true of many of our regional public colleges that are located in, an, in, in rural serving places. Wow, um, they, these are, they have an outsized impact. And um, frankly, the reality is in a world like ours, um, we need all of our institutions. And, yes. uh, yeah. So. Yep. We are better together, Jay, right? <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you, Barbara, for joining us on Leaders on Leadership. Um, we're really appreciative of this time and you're sharing your thoughts and your insights, wisdom, and some of your own experiences uh, with leadership uh, with our audience. Um, I, I'd welcome a final word from you at this moment, Barbara. Well, Jay, I just want to thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to uh, be with you today. And uh, it's always been a pleasure to work with you. And I, I thank you for your unique insights. You always seem to know who's right for every single physician. So um, I'm looking forward to following um, all of your placements in the future. Well, thank you. I, we, I, I look forward to our paths continuing to intersect um, um, because we are um, you know, we're both doing mission-based work that, uh, that's really aimed at celebrating um, the, uh, you know, the benefits of higher education for a free, open, and uh, uh, democratic um, uh, society to flourish. So um, uh, thank you for your time this morning. Listeners, we welcome your suggestions or thoughts for leaders we might feature in upcoming segments. You can send those uh, to leadershippodcast at academicsearch.org. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you might find your podcasts. By the way, it's also available on the Academic Search website. Leaders on Leadership is brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. Together, our mission is to support colleges and universities during times of transition and through leadership development activities that serve current and future generations of leaders in the academy. Again, it's been a special pleasure to have Barbara Mystic, the president of NICU, on our show today. Thank you again, Barbara, for joining us and have a great day.